On this episode, I interviewed Joseph Grinstein, who is a director of strength and performance at Hyperthrive Athletics. Today's topic was the throwing athlete, and we talked about two different kind of main segments here with performance first and then kind of more of that health injury risk reduction second. So we first started off talking about topics. Um, Joseph talked about the kind of the biomechanical throwing motion and the ideal way to do that. And then we talked about the different parts and breaking that down. So we touched upon kind of having that lower body power, trunk coordination, bracing of the front leg. And then we kind of expanded upon that in different ways to train that and different focuses and how Joseph and Hyperthrive Athletics likes to program for the performance aspect of baseball. Uh, we then worked on looked into more of that shoulder health and shoulder injury risk reduction reduction type stuff. We talked about the main importances that they like to use with Hyperthrive Athletics, the main exercises, and the main principles they use there, and then talked a little bit about training in season versus out of season. So great episode. Here it is. Welcome to No Week Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up to date, evidence based content and knowledge through your life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Noic Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Joseph Grinstein, who is a director of strength and performance with Hyperthrive Athletics. So really appreciate you being on, Joseph. Uh, first, you can maybe just give a little introduction of yourself, um, and then we can kind of go from there, because yeah, today's topic is going to obviously be the throwing athlete um, and performance, and we're going to talk about health as well. So yeah, just a little, little introduction to start, start us out, and then we can kind of move on from there. Yeah, of course. Um, so first off, thanks for having me appreciate being here. Um, so my background, um, grew up playing baseball, but a lot of other sports as well, you know, through high school, played football and wrestled and baseball. Um, then when I went to school, it was kind of all over the place with what I wanted to do, but eventually found my way um, to kinesiology. And then I went to a small D school, so I didn't really have an opportunity to learn um, at that institution from a strength and conditioning standpoint. So I took the opportunity to go work at a few different schools. So I worked at University of Alabama as an intern and then UC Berkeley, um, then finished up my internships at Cressy Sports Performance. Um, and then immediately after that, I really had the kind of unique opportunity to start working with my brothers. Um, both of my brothers are in, you know, the strength and conditioning realm. So um, it worked out really well as far as timing that we all moved back to our hometown at the same time, um, which is Sacramento, California. And then we opened up hyperthrive athletics. So um, I had a very unique experience as far as I got to kind of start running my own facility immediately, where a lot of people kind of have to work their way up the ranks. And um, I think that gave me a unique experience. Um, one, because it kind of put everything on my shoulders from a coaching perspective, like I had to take responsibility for my own programming, my own coaching, but it also gave me the creativity to kind of explore um, because, you know, I hear a lot of coaches or I talk to a lot of coaches and though they're like learning and writing programs, they don't really get to facilitate and run their own programs for at least like the first few years of their career, um, which is definitely a different experience than I had. And then, you know, now kind of what my role is, I definitely am super in the trenches as far as coaching. Like I'm in the gym every single day, uh, majority of the day. And I have a really unique experience from a coaching perspective too, that I get to work with athletes from every level of the sport. Um, we work mostly with baseball and softball players, a few different athletes on top of that as well, but that's really our wheelhouse. So the youngest guy I work with, uh, I work with a kid that's like 11, 12, and then I work all the way up to, you know, a guy that's playing in the big leagues. Um, and then on top of that, I get to train adults as well a few times a week. You know, like I still train my parents, which is awesome, super fun. Um, and it's just, um, it, it really allows you, I think, to hone your um, experience and your cues and your communication skills as a coach if you're working with such a wide variety of people. So that's really what my day-to-day -day life is like right now is just, you know, a lot of programming for the athletes I work with, a lot of coaching, um, and, you know, working with athletes at every single level of the sport. Yeah, definitely. Um, so just kind of diving in more into what you do uh, every day um, and how it's set up. Do you, do you go, so the athletes are is it kind of coming in on the off seasons or do you have full round athletes? And then how kind of, um, I guess a general day weekly setup 
uh, for an athlete in your in your uh, yeah, Thrive is? Yeah. So right now it's definitely kind of unique with everything True. going on with COVID because True. like with our professional athletes, majority of the time I, you know, get them around this time in the year and then I'm working with them until they leave in like February. Whereas, you know, I'm working with guys now that I, we started working in September of last year. So it's going on a full year of training, which I think for an athlete is unique because it takes a certain level of dedication and discipline. But from a coaching perspective, it was also extremely unique, right? Like how often does a coach get to work with an athlete for a year straight and really like build out a program that um, allows for development at that level? So that's been pretty awesome. And I think the athletes who've taken advantage of that have gotten a huge, huge um, advantage over the athletes that didn't, right? Um, But so we do work mostly on like a seasonal level with our baseball and softball players. Like in today's day and age, kids are playing their high school season. They're going straight into summer ball and then they're going straight into fall ball with their high school again. And then they might get a little bit of a break over the winter. But for the most part, they're, you know, touching a baseball every single month of the year. And especially in a state like California, yeah, we do get a winter, but it's not like we're in the Northeast and like snow stops kids from getting on a field. Um, But we definitely see, you know, the transitions of like, we're very heavy in the, in the summer when kids have a little bit more time. We've actually had great retention through the fall now because obviously kids aren't playing as much of fall ball. Um, so with high school athletes, it's definitely a little bit more year round and we definitely encourage kids to come in in season, but with everything going on with school and they're already playing so much, uh, we, you know, see an athletes a couple times a week and I'm totally fine with that. Like, you know, hit them with the meat and potatoes and then let them go play their sport. Um, and then with our pro guys, little bit different that we don't see them as much um, or for as long, but we luckily actually do get a fairly decent off season with baseball, um, get a few months to, you know, lay some groundwork for those guys. Uh, and then I do work with our guys kind of on a remote basis, working in season when they are with their teams. Um, and then as far as, you know, at our facility, what a day looks like, we recently opened a facility in Roseville, our second facility, um, where we actually have skill work inside the facility. And that allows us the ability to, you know, we work with a pitching coordinator, Kyle Rogers, he's incredible, um, but have really great communication lines between the strength and the skill side. So a kid will come in, go through their dynamic warmup. You know, if there is anything that we're working on specifically, they'll have an individualized program there. Um, then they'll go into their arm care, which is, you know, band routine and plyo care stuff. We can talk more about kind of what a routine looks like as far as that. And then they'll go into their skill work for, so for whatever they have on their schedule that day, whether it's working off the mound, um, you know, pull downs, just catch play, and then they'll go into their actual power and strength work. So it's really nice that these kids and for their parents, they don't have to drive their kids around all the time. Um, but they can come in and get everything done under one roof. Um, and all the stresses are monitored, right? And that's like a huge issue with modern sports is that kids have individualized coaches. Like we have a lot of kids who come do strength training with us and then they'll go and they have like a hitting guy, they have a pitching guy, they have a fielding guy, and their parents want to drive them to four different facilities. But then two, nobody is communicating enough to let the others know what type of stress this athlete is under. And okay, what can I do on my side to modify or just ensure that this athlete, um, you know, is being taken care of on all fronts and that all of these stresses are being accounted for? Yeah, for sure. Definitely with the being able to at least try and get some sort of uh, contact with them throughout season to still progress them. And like I said, get the meat and potatoes out of it and then making sure that's probably definitely a big benefit with being able to communicate across, across it, especially in the youth athletes, which definitely are going to have all the, like you said, all those coaches and the communication might not be the easiest for everyone. Yeah. It's Um, pretty difficult. (laughs) I guess. So moving into, I guess we'll kind of break it up into two main segments with performance first and then kind of moving more towards in the health injury risk reduction side of things. So I guess um, the f- the first thing we can maybe talk about is just the, I, I guess, quote unquote, ideal biomechanical type way you w- want to try um, and th- look at the throwing aspects from a strength and conditioning standpoint. Yeah. And I think you make a really good point. Like, let's look at it from, you know, biomechanical efficiency perspective, but then also you can dive really deep into that. And then you realize, okay, well, what can I actually affect as a strength and conditioning coach, mm-hmm. right? And that's where the skill work does come in because pitching is such a unique, um, it's a, such a unique movement that every athlete is going to have their own kind of individual signature on it. Like you can look at 30 different pitchers from the major leagues, 
each of them will look very different, but they'll get the same result, which is elite velocity, right? They're all thrown 95 to 100 miles an hour. But what I like to do to kind of simplify it, I think there's two really good analogies that make it very easy to kind of break down what we're looking for and what we can affect as a strength and conditioning coach. So the first one I like to look at is just like the analogy of a whip, right? So when we look at somebody who's really good with a whip and you look at it in slow motion, you'll see that the most important part of a whip and the most important part of, you know, a throwing mechanics in my opinion is sequencing, right? So when you look at a whip, the guy will put force into the whip and then he goes through like kind of a breaking portion and that creates deceleration of one unit, which creates acceleration of the other, right? So in order for the momentum to travel down that whip, there has to be a deceleration, right? And that's how it travels and sequences up the, the whip because that momentum travels up. Just like that with a pitcher, we create the power and the force through the lower half, but then we have to sequence and decelerate in order for that power to actually travel up the kinetic chain. So a lot of people talk about like a a breaking or a bracing or a blocking mechanism in pitching. You see it in in any throwing sport or any rotational sport, right? We can see it in javelin. We can see it in the swing. But in order for us to produce force, but then also sequence and let it travel up to the upper half and in the implement eventually, you'll see that front half will create the power, but then the front leg will brace really hard and hit the brakes so that that momentum can travel up, right? So as a pitcher, what that means is you have to be extremely stable, strong, and powerful in single leg movements um, because we're going to travel down the mound, but then that front leg is going to hit the brakes really hard. You'll often see those guys go to full leg extension, right? They'll start with a soft bend in that front knee, and they'll hit the brakes so hard that they'll go to a full leg lockout, and that is what creates the force or it basically forces the momentum to go up the upper half, right? Um, So that's how I look at kind of that, the whip analogy is the lower half has to be able to create the force, just like that person actually putting the force into the whip, but then it has to create a deceleration pattern in order for it to travel and sequence up. And then the second analogy that I really like, um, it's, it's a trebuchet. So basically it's a type of catapult, right? So it's like the gnarly ones that you see in like Lord of the Rings where they're like throwing boulders at a castle. Um, so it's like the one where they have like a huge rock on one side connected to the arm and then it travels down to basically like a piece of rope and they drop the rock and you know, the rope swings and throws like, I think back in the day they could throw like two or 300 pound boulders, like they're gnarly (laughs) machines. Um, I totally like looked these up when I started thinking about this analogy. So I know a little bit too much about trebuchets. Um, But what I think about that as far as like the throwing mechanics is there's basically three parts of that um, mechanism. There's like the base that the entire thing rests on, right? That has to be extremely sturdy or else the entire thing falls apart. It doesn't have any direction and it doesn't have anything to push up against like that front leg. So I think about the base of that trebuchet as like the front leg or the bracing mechanism. On one side of the swing arm, you have this massive freaking rock. It's just as heavy as possible, right? So it can create a massive amount of momentum. As far as a pitcher and what we can affect from, you know, a strength and conditioning perspective, if I get an athlete to have a more forceful relationship with the ground and create more power that they can sequence up to the upper half, that's like having a heavier rock. Like we just added weight to that other side, to that counterbalance, right? And then you got like swing arm attaches to the little ropey thing that actually holds the the rock or whatever we're trying to throw. So what I think of as like that swing arm is like the trunk and its ability to actually sequence and um, basically uh, like we have to create that force, but then we have to connect it to the upper half. So I see that as like the trunk's ability, one, to create stiffness, because in order to create movement, we have to create stiffness, but then also its ability to sequence. So like that swing arm, if that swing arm wasn't perfectly sequenced, obviously that rock wouldn't travel very far. So that's like a a good analogy. And it also shows us what we can affect, right? If we have a stronger base, we obviously have a a stronger, more stable thing to push up against to create that force against. If we create a more powerful athlete, we have a bigger rock, a bigger counterbalance. And if we have a more um, stable and coordinated trunk, that's like that that swing arm becoming a, a more efficient um, it, it's basically 
I'm forgetting the word right now or the word I'm trying to use, but it's ability to take force and then utilize it actually into the implement. Okay. So let's tell me if I'm wrong here for recapping that. So you really want to try and develop, <laughs> develop lower body power as much as possible. And you want to develop that power, but then to be able to eccentrically stop that quickly and then coordinate that up the trunk in order to transfer that into your throwing motion. You said it better than I did. Yeah. Perfect recap. <laughs> Um, so when, when, I guess, what are some things you will maybe break it down into those three things, your lower body power, your eccentric deceleration of that, and then the, the ability to transfer that, um, kind of up the, up the trunk. So maybe kind of break it into those three and talk about different ways you can kind of work on those three, um, uh, aspects of the athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Just from like a super real life perspective, like exactly what we do to kind of focus on each one of those. We're definitely like fans of just loading up heavy compound movements with athletes that obviously need to produce more force. Um, so we're big fans of trap bar deadlifts. We'll load up extremely heavy single leg work. We love like safety squat bar, reverse lunges, safety squat bar, split squats. We do a ton of different lunge variations. So just creating a more forceful athlete. Um, obviously there is like a tipping point where just creating, you know, max effort for it is not going to be, it's a, really fast movement pitching is. Um, so at some point we need to focus more on power development. Um, and we can do those through the same exact, you know, exercise selections. Obviously nothing we do in the weight room is going to be fast enough to really specifically apply to pitching, but we need to create a base level of strength for athletes in order for them to be stable and strong in those positions. So definitely huge on loading up, um, hinge variations and single leg patterns. Um, and then from there, as far as like the coordination or the trunk work, I'm a really big fan of like just absolutely crushing stability with young kids. Like, like most kids can't even do a really solid plank, right? Where like we don't probably need to be doing any crazy coordinate, like coordinated core work. Probably just start with like absolutely dominating a payoff press, absolutely dom dominating some crawls and dominating some um, plank variation. So we focus hugely on that. And then, I think one big thing is also the ability to sequence, right? So there are some ways that we can positively affect that in the weight room, I believe, and we're huge on med ball work. So pretty much every single session will include some rotational power med ball work, right? Um, again, it's not as fast as the actual skill movement, um, but it has an ability to positively affect in more ways than just the power production, I believe. So one of the biggest things that I believe is a positive thing from med ball work is simply that we get the bat or the actual baseball out of the athlete's hands and force them to just move that move like an athlete, like just be athletic and throw that thing as hard as you can. And what I see with a lot of youth athletes, and I think it's a negative effect of how much coaching they actually do get and maybe um, not a lot of intelligent coaching cues or um, you know, just not really understanding how motor learning works in the first place and then trying to teach a kid how to swing a bat where it looks like when you watch some kids swing, it looks like they're trying to perform like a rehearsed dance instead of an athletic movement, right? So if I put a bat's hands, he's worried about what it looks like, if his form is right, you know, um, all these things, basically it's like anxiety where if I throw a med ball in a baseball player's hands and I tell him, throw that thing as hard as you possibly can against the wall, we're probably going to get some more natural movement patterns. The body's going to self-organize a little bit more efficiently. And hopefully in the long run, that will in turn, um, kind of result in them one learning how to throw with intent but then their body realizing, okay, this is actually a way more efficient movement pattern than whatever I've been trying to do. Um, so it just gives the body a little bit more of fresh information that they might not be receiving um, that allows them, you know, and their motor learning system to maybe find some more efficient movement patterns that they haven't been finding just with their skill implements. Yeah. So, so originally developing that, you know, just lower body strength in general to try to get that up and then sequencing that with the med balls um to try to you know like you said take the bat out of their hands to try to just learn the movement without focusing on you know focusing on too much um and then that would obviously train probably more of that more the velocity side of that force velocity curve anyways we're developing that that force initially with your heavier lifts and then moving towards that which is slowly towards you know more realistic with the bat and the ball and so on 
what what about with uh, you mentioned the ability to kind of have that um, that front leg bracing um, and the ability to generate that power and then brace and then transfer it up. Do you guys do anything specifically with that, like eccentrics or anything specifically with that, or is it again just trying to develop as much strength as you can in that lower limbs? I think so. From a very global perspective. Perspective, yes, like heavy eccentric strength work, I think is going to positively affect it. But if you look at the movement in itself, it's not necessarily a ton of eccentric movement. Like they're like barely moving eccentrically. And actually, if you're moving eccentrically in your pitching move, there's probably something wrong going on um, with that bracing mechanism. Uh, but just from again, like it, it's not always about being as specific as possible. So yes, heavy eccentric strength work is like we're huge fans of those. Um, but as far as maybe like how we can really positively affect that bracing mechanism in the weight room, there is one concept that I actually really like to utilize. I think it's a great concept because I think a lot of people might not necessarily just understand what they're trying to accomplish in that movement. So what situation can we put their body in to learn? Okay, actually, this is what I want to do. I'm a huge fan of, um, isometrics for that right? So we utilize overcoming isometrics where an athlete will be basically like almost at full extension in a split squat, but there, so how we set it up is like, I'll put pins in the squat rack and I'll set it up to where they're grabbing between their legs in that split squat position, almost to full extension. And I want them to drive the ground away as hard as they possibly can. Right. I will have that go first. So I'll have them hold for like five to 10 seconds, um, at pretty much, full capacity or, you know, 70 above something like that. And then I'll have them go pretty much immediately, like 20 to 30 seconds rest into a med ball throw. Right. So one, it kind of puts them into like a learning situation where the body is given a task. It's like put force in the ground as, as hard as possible in this position. And then we have to actually like coordinate it in a dynamic movement. Um, so I think from a motor learning standpoint, it kind of teaches the body like, Oh, okay, this is what it feels like to put force into the ground in this position. Then it actually potentiates the ability to do that. Right. So if I do that and you know, now I understand, okay, the athlete knows exactly what position they're supposed to be in and we've potentiated it as much as possible. Uh, so, you know, that athlete system is fired up and should be, or should have the ability to do that. If it still does not do that within the skill movement or, you know, what is as close as we can get to it with a med ball toss. Now I know that we have a strength deficit that we need to address because that athlete simply doesn't have strength and the ability to create that bracing mechanism, right? The athlete should, it, I mean, he, or any athlete at a high level should, but maybe there's something going on where they're just not strong enough to hold that position. Um, and so I think that's where like simple compound movements come in. Like you could load a freaking dumbbell split squat heavy, mm -hmm. like, I've been training for six years pretty much without fail. If I load that thing as heavy as I can and I hit six heavy reps, like I'm still going to be sore the next day. You know what I mean? Like people try to overcomplicate it, but I mean, the simple stuff works for a reason. And I think, you know, this is, we're, this is kind of, um, you know, one thing I wanted to bring up based on your question last time is like, we see so much in our industry now, like there's almost like a gap where some people make the argument, the weight room is just the weight room. We're trying to build a bigger engine. Don't focus on sport and don't focus on the skill. Let that happen on the field. And then you have other people that are like only focus on things that apply to skill, nothing else. Like they're athletes, you know, they're a baseball player. All they need to focus on is their skill. And I think it's one people want to like market themselves, but I really don't see a reason why you can't positively affect both ends of that spectrum. And I think when you learn that you can, now we can create drills just like I talked about where it's like, let's, focus on the force potential and then let's focus on the force expression and we'll bring them together. Cause those are two totally separate things, right? Like a power lifter has an incredible amount of force production and potential, right? They can express for, or they, they have the potential to express force, but they don't know how, how to express force when it comes to something like a swing or a pitch. It's, it's totally separate things. But I think when you start to mesh those two worlds, that's when you can create some really cool um, results for your athletes. And I think that's what should be driving the process at every stage. 
Yeah, I kind of agreed with that. And that's a, a, one reason why I was happy you came on because I, you know, I haven't necessarily worked with a whole bunch of throwing athletes and it wasn't my sport. I mean, I played when I was little, you know, back in third and fifth grade, like everyone does, a little bit of t-ball and so on. But, uh, you know, it wasn't my sport growing up and I don't have major experiences in it. So I think that is a really good point of figuring out how to how to combine them at least, a, you know, a little bit with not going overboard either way. But so, so when you're kind of going back to those, the med ball movements you do and you're teaching the kids those to try, you know, kind of maybe more of the closer to the sports side, but you're still getting, I guess, like I said, you're just increasing velocity and so on. But how, how much do you try and focus on technique work there? Or is it, is you trying to really let the kids um, or the athletes in general, um, whatever age to try and figure it out with themselves with throwing that ball as hard as they can? Like how much do you go towards more of the skill side versus just, you know, exert as much force as possible? Cause I know you guys really do like to use that. And I think that is, an important part of a lot of, um, training. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And I think it's something that, um, maybe has developed or evolved as my career went on because I used to look at it. Yeah. as like, this is, it has the ability to, um, increase, you know, our power production capabilities, but I also looked at it as like a way where I can give my two cents as far as coaching cues, as far as the skill work, you know what I mean? Like, well, you should have, you know, you should be sitting more into your back hip and have a heavy heel on the back hip so that you can sit in your glutes, whatever. And then, you know, I think as you go on and you just learn about coaching, you understand that those cues probably aren't the most effective or the most have the most positive relationship to actually creating positive change. So really what I, what I hope I can do as a coach is if I want to see a change made in that athletes, um, you know, just the movement pattern, like, I need to change the drill in order to change the movement. I probably shouldn't really say anything because when we're moving that fast, like I want an athlete to be moving as fast as possible. The last thing I want them doing is thinking intrinsically. Right. So, um, like I'll try to give an example. Like if I want, there's, there's a concept from Franz Bosch called, um, foot from above. Right. So when we're changing direction or when we're trying to put force into the ground, we don't want to slide in. So that's what he kind of refers to it as where our foot is like sliding into the ground instead of coming foot from above and like planting. Right. So if I see a kid kind of sliding in with his front foot, which is not necessarily the most optimal for creating a good bracing mechanism, what I'll do is like, I'll put a low hurdle right in front of him and say, all right, you have to step over and you have to, you know, plant right over that hurdle. And now instead of me using my words and usually I'll just like put the hurdle there and say, all right, like figure out how to do it. Right. Cause then their body's actually learning in a natural and kind of organic way. And, um, they're, they're basically going to get better results because they're not intrinsically focused. Um, and their body can more naturally self-organize and then they'll actually learn. Right. So that's just one example of kind of how I would like to coach. Obviously, uh, that's difficult, right? Like it's hard to come up with a drill for every single problem, but I mean, that's kind of the beauty of like learning how to be a better coach. Yes. That's yeah. I like that. Cause then you allow them to, you know, figure it out without, without speaking just by making like changing the drill. It's a good aspect there. So now that we've touched on kind of that lower body, um, as well as the trans transitioning up the trunk. Do you guys do anything specifically? We'll get into more of the injury risk reduction and health, shoulder health stuff later, but do you do anything specific for more, maybe more of that upper limb shoulder area for performance aspects, or is that more of a, uh, like I said, focusing on the lower limb and the coordination um, in the trunk? Yeah. Uh, it was definitely, you know, like back in the day, like in the nineties, like everybody told baseball players, like you, sh you probably shouldn't bench at all, but if you do like, don't go below 90 and, all this. And I think like one good way to like make it very simple and put it in a different perspective is telling a baseball player that they shouldn't get stronger in their upper body because they have a higher chance of risk, like risk injury being a baseball player is like telling a sprinter that they shouldn't do any lower body work because they have a higher chance of pulling a hamstring. Like, yeah, you're a sprinter. You put a lot of force and power through your lower limbs that automatically increases your risk of injury and you're freaking moving fast, right? Like a baseball player moves really, really fast. So they are at more risk for an upper body, upper limb injury. That's because they're a baseball player. They take that risk as, you know, part of the game. Now it's my job as a strength and conditioning coach to make sure that 
their body is prepared to take the um, toll that the the sport plays, right? So it would be super irresponsible of me to be like, well, you know, we're not going to work it because you're a baseball player and that elbow is, you know, how you make your money. Um, like what would be even safer than being in the weight room is for that athlete to sit on the couch all off season. Like they for sure wouldn't get injured there, but now we're pushing off the like risk of injury and the risk of injury is going to rise when they're actually asked to do their sports skill. So we definitely do, you know, a ton of upper body work, um, ton of row variations, both vertical and horizontal ton of pressing horizontal, uh, pressing variations, both vertical and horizontal. Obviously the vertical will be dependent on how well that athlete can get into an overhead position. We're going to be smart with that. Like we're going to use a landmine press majority of the time over like having an athlete do a barbell overhead press. Um, so just be smart with your exercise selection from that perspective. Um, and then, you know, as far as like, just to give an example, like back work is extremely important. One for a healthy and resilient shoulder, but two, our body is only going to allow us to create high velocity movements as long as it knows it can break those movements, right? Like the best F1 drivers in the world are the guys that hit the brakes with the shortest amount of time before the turn, right? They're the best because they know that they can hit the brakes the latest and make it around that turn safely. So the best pitchers in the world are probably going to be the guys whose body knows like I can create this velocity for as long as possible because I know that my brakes are efficient enough to hit me and, and, you know, safely break it down at the end. So building up like really strong freaking back, not only does it increase, you know, your health and resiliency as an athlete, it can actually increase performance because your body's going to allow higher velocities to take place for longer because it knows it's safe. Yeah. Okay. So I, I like the point you made with the the sprinter, and you know you're obviously going to be strengthening legs as well. So I think that definitely is a good point. And still with the back, I mean, strengthening upper body in general is definitely going to be really important, probably as well for throwing. Um, for for the mobility aspect, um, would you say you look at that more from a standpoint, uh, whether we're talking thoracic or shoulder, do you look at that more of a standpoint of performance or more of a standpoint of kind of health in general, or is it just kind of an in-between aspect of that yeah that's a good question i would oh man I, yeah i would have to say both like, that's yeah. kind of the only way to answer that but um like a good way to think about kind of upper body mobility from a baseball perspective like or just from a throwing athlete perspective like when people think of the shoulder like if you ask any person on the street where, like where's your shoulder they're gonna point right here right so that's the glenohumeral joint is what people think of as the shoulder, like a hundred times out of a hundred. What a lot of people fail to realize is that thing is connected to your shoulder blade, to your scapula, right? And your scapula rests on your thorax and your thorax is extremely dependent on your thoracic spine, which is extremely dependent on the spine in general. And, you know, obviously our thorax is very dependent on what's going on at the pelvis so now when we thought about shoulder mobility and somebody said, you know, I've got like a shoulder mobility issue, but they haven't looked globally at everything else that's going on, right? So there's a lot of things that affect down the chain what's going on actually at our shoulder. Um, so specifically looking at kind of the T-spine from a baseball player perspective, um, the demands that the T-spine is placed or the demands that are placed upon the T-spine when you're throwing are incredible. Like break down a slow motion video of a pitcher throwing, like every single movement that the T-spine can do, it's going into extremes when we're pitching, right? We have to have extreme extension through the upper back. We have to have extreme rotation. Like if you look at a pitcher when their foot plants, their upper body is still rotated completely at third base, right? Their lower half is completely rotated at home plate. And that's how we, you know, create elastic power is creating that stretch and creating that hip shoulder separation. Um, and then from there, it has to actually deliver the arm. So the scapula has to deliver the arm at an incredible speeds, like the fastest thing in sports. Um, and then from there, it has to deliver the arm through the follow through, right? So that scapula has to be able to move really, really efficiently along that shoulder blade, or now we're putting the glenohumeral joint at risk. Um, so from a baseball player perspective, 
talking about strength and conditioning, one, you need to realize there's absolutely nothing we can do in the weight room that's going to match the speeds or the forces that are happening in that movement. But we have to try, right? Like that's our jobs. Um, so when we're talking about shoulder health, obviously you're going to hear a lot of people talking about the rotator cuff, you know, that holds the shoulder in a really solid position, um, within the glenoid fossa, right? So that's important to just strengthen that. And we do that through internal and external rotation exercises, both manual banded with weights. We're going to, you know, put a ton of variation and focus there, um, where I think, and, and that's extremely focused on in baseball. I think people do a really good job of that pretty much across the board where I think is kind of missed is, you know, strengthening and stabilizing the scapula and the muscles around it, but then also focus on, okay, can that scapula actually coordinate itself well, right? Like if you ask an athlete, Hey, like show, like move your scapula for me, like take your scapula and move it in a big circle. Like I promise I try this with people all the time. Like in adult classes, people by 40 have completely lost the ability to do it. And a lot of times they didn't even know that thing could move. Like they have no idea it can move. But if you take somebody and sit, like try to teach them a shoulder car and try to get their shoulder blade to move, it's, it's almost completely immobile. Uh, baseball players are usually better about it, uh, but it's, it's a huge problem. Things that we love to do for that, one, like I, I like FRC stuff. I think cars are really effective in that way just to get somebody to challenge them, to put them kind of in a movement problem that they have to create a solution for that their body will learn, right? Through giving them that problem, their body will learn the solution. But then also I think kettlebell skill work has become a really big part of our program. I think it has huge benefits. So by kettlebell skill work, I mean Turkish get-ups, the variations of those, kettlebell windmills, um, a lot of carries like waiters walks, overhead carries, stuff like that. Um, Because, you know, I think what's really unique about something like a kettlebell windmill is that the scapula basically is reacting to two different things. The scapula reacts to one, what the thorax is doing and how it has to sit upon that. And then it has to react to, okay, where does the arm actually want to go, right? So if we look at like a kettlebell windmill, it has to react to those two things at the same time. It has to react to us actually getting into that hinge and rotational pattern where the thorax is changing positionings and it's extending and rotating. And then it has to deal with, oh shit, like that's a heavy kettlebell above my head. I probably should keep that right over the top of me or I'm going to like, you know, get messed up. Um, so it doesn't match at all. I'm not saying it does match at all, like the force of the speeds, but it's, you know, a slower movement that we've actually, we do have quite a bit of force if we're using a heavy kettlebell where our scapula has to coordinate itself and discover the relationship between the thorax and where the hand wants to go. And I, I think that's a really good way to look at all movements when we're trying to teach a body or whatever it is it's okay. What's the solution we want them to come to? Like the solution we want them to come to is we want their scapula to be more coordinated and to be able to deliver that hand and that arm more efficiently. Okay. Let's give them a movement problem that will force them to come to that solution. And the drill teaches itself. I don't have to teach, right? Which the drill is a much better teacher than I ever will be. Mm. So, so you would, for like kind of the shoulder health side and even just, I guess, coordination of the shoulder in general. So like I said, both the performance and the health side you would kind of give them movements to go through and in maybe positions that in like overhead positions or uncomfortable positions um and have them try to figure out how to i guess keep it as quote-unquote stable i guess or as move it as well as it possibly can is that kind of in general yeah and obviously like be be smart about it don't give you know a person who has terrible overhead mobility don't like give them a kettlebell and say hey carry this over your head uh (laughs) make sure they have the prerequisite overhead mobility abilities. But then on top of that, yeah, I think we need to challenge athletes to coordinate overhead movement more efficiently. And I think um, things like a Turkish get up or a half Turkish get up, if you are lacking in overhead mobility, half Turkish get up is not a fully overhead movement, but you know, at the same time, an athlete has to work with rotation, extension, hip, you know, extension at the same time. So there's a lot of factors going on there that the body's probably going to learn from it, right? Like there's a lot of information, information being input into the system. So that's why I think there's a ton of value in things like, you know, kettlebell skill work. So do you, for 
other, I guess, shoulder health moves. Do you, do you focus a lot on overhead shoulder things or do you, what are other, I guess, do you have any other things specifically you like to use for that? Or is it mainly, like you said, just kind of finding out different movements that will um, challenge him? Yeah, I, we definitely do um, a lot of overhead carries. Uh, I love the landmine press. I think you can load up a landmine press for an entire off season and someone probably wouldn't be stale on it. So that's probably my go-to movement as far as an overhead pressing movement, just because I think the safety of it in regards to the shoulder and the elbow are huge. And I think there's a ton of carryover and we will progress that um, for a, a long time, right? We'll go like half kneeling press into split stance press. And then we'll actually almost do like, it's like, I hate calling it like an Olympic lifting variation, but we'll do like split jerks, like single arm split jerks with a landmine press. Um, And I think that's like, you know, decently high velocities and, you know, high power outputs, but then also it forces the athlete to now, okay, how do we coordinate sequencing in the lower and the trunk, like lower half trunk, and then, you know, eventually produce it into the upper body. So I, I hate saying it has like high carryover because you can never prove anything. Um, but I think that has more carryover than, you know, let's say like a, a barbell overhead press would to a sport like, like throwing a baseball or, you know, any overhead throwing athlete. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about shoulder mobility and, and kind of working on those as well for, and the general movements you do for decreasing kind of injury risk there, what about, um, how important do you prioritize the mobility of the hips, um, for performance and injury risk reduction as well with baseball. It's huge. I mean, like in the ability to internally and externally rotate, um, your hips is like, I mean, you don't see a lot of high level baseball players. Well, actually you do. You see a lot of high level (laughs) baseball players with pretty poor internal external rotation. Uh, their body just finds solutions outside of it, right? Like, we had a pitcher um, that we worked with two years ago. Unfortunately, he had to move back to Florida. I loved working with him. His name's Jimmy Herget, but uh, he had like femoral acetabular femoral acetabular impingement on both sides, like horribly. Like, dude had absolutely zero internal rotation on either side, right? And it was like painful. Like, he, he absolutely was a guy that would not do any bilateral squats. You know, like that would have been really bad for him, but he has still been, you know, recorded on a radar gun at 101 miles an hour. Like that's elite, right? Like, so you can't really look at anybody and say, okay, well, you don't have internal rotation. So, you know, you can't be an elite pitcher. His body just found solutions around it. He had an extremely short stride. Um, you know, he had kind of a three quarter arm slot where he kind of dropped. And I think that actually, um, allowed him to, you know, utilize a little bit less rotation, but he was just a very short strided whippy dude and his body worked through it. But obviously we, we don't want somebody to, he had some, you know, his bony presentation would not allow for internal external rotation in his hips. That's like a a completely understandable thing and we can work around that. But if someone has the ability to have better internal external rotation, we're going to try to work on it. Right. So um, like today we had, a, uh, kind of a lower CNS day. So we work on a high, low model and today was like a lower recovery style day for us. Like today included in our, um, you know, workout, like we had a tall kneeling hip car. So basically, uh, you know, PVC loaded feet against the wall in a tall kneeling position and basically like a really controlled hurdle step over and then back. And we'll also do a ton of like 90, 90 hip switches, So anything where I can increase the athlete's ability to find true internal external rotation. And I think that's kind of botched in 90, 90 hips, which is a lot where the athlete is just rotating their body back and forth and like smashing their knees from side to side. Like on those, we want to actually force the athlete, like to understand what internal rotation and external rotation feel like. Cause a lot of times people don't really know what that feels like to actually like spin your femur, right? Like, what it feels like to rotate within the hip socket. Um, so that's massively important, but then it's also just loading people in a variety of movement patterns, right? Like we're going to do lunges of all kinds. We're going to do lateral lunges of all kinds. Um, so giving them a level of movement variability that will kind of force internal external rotation, um, not excessive, right. But allow them to kind of dominate different positions so that their body, like we've kind of been, Um, you know, it's been coming up again and again, but it's like 
provide the situation for the body to learn and then allow the body to learn through that instead of trying to teach yourself. You, so kind of building upon that, do you, do you do things as you would with the shoulder where you try to put them in movements that are, uh, you know, I guess maybe not the most comfortable and that's figure out ways. So maybe like an overstrided lunge and kind of slightly load up on that or anything along those sorts, or is it mostly, um, kind of moving through like more of the different, uh, movements that you mentioned and then working on just general strength. Yeah. Um, I would say kind of, I I guess from a, an upper body perspective, one thing I would say is like, especially when it comes to kind of making sure that it applies to skill, um, we're going to throw athletes into a position where they have to throw from different positions. Right. And I think that's going to have more application than, it would like, you know, throw on like a chaos band overhead carry, which I think, you know, that may have some application too. Um, but for it to apply to the sport, I think um, because when we look at a baseball player and their actual skill work, there's not a ton of variability, right? Like the arm slot is the arm slot is the arm slot, especially even when you see a guy um, who's like, you know, a sidearm pitcher and drops their trunk, you know, 45 degrees that arm slot is always going to be the same. Um, and that's, you know, just because the actual, actual musculature in our arm, this is where it produces the most force. This is the most advantageous position for the muscles that are working to produce velocity. So when you see a kid getting super extended, it's usually a result of like a coaching cue and not actually because their body's figuring out the most efficient thing to do. But what we can do to kind of positively affect that arm slot is you know, we need their body to move efficiently so that that can be efficient, right? Like I talked about, like the arm is going to be affected by things much lower in the kinetic chain. So, you know, having a kid do even something like a three-step drop, like what would be like for a quarterback, you know, but a lot of these kids have never done anything outside of, okay, I'm on a mound, step down and throw, right? But if we introduce a little bit more variability, um, then maybe the body will learn something it hasn't learned before. You know, it's being exposed to information it hasn't learned before. So changing the footwork, having them drop from a box, having them react to anything, um, even just forcing them to be athletic, like throwing a ball at them, force them to change direction and then throw. So it's how can we create a more athletic movement pattern and a more resilient movement pattern that's going to eventually in turn just have a positive effect on what their skill work actually is, which is something that's pretty repetitive and actually pretty consistent yeah so like increasing their general athleticism so they can apply that to the sport a little bit better okay uh, i guess we'll go um because i know i'm cognizant of your time here we'll go one more i think a big question a lot of people have um would just be for in-season baseball or preseason baseball how much do you do work on the shoulder and how much do you allow it to rest or is it just super individualized to the person and how they're feeling? Yeah. I think when it comes to in season, um, I think with any sport, but specifically with baseball, because it's such a repetitive sport and it's such a one-sided sport, like we're doing everything on one side. It's very unique in that way. I think we need to look at what they're already being provided in that, um, actual skill work and just fill up the buckets that they're not being provided. Right. So, like you said, that shoulder is taking a lot of stress. Um, one example that we really need to keep an eye on when we're in season, almost every single baseball player is going to um, lose internal rotation as the season goes on. They're going to gain external rotation, right? Or it can be the other way around as well. Basically, they're going to just lose or be limited in rotation in their shoulder um, during that season. So I think one thing I love there is, you know, let's not like stretch them into a position where they're uncomfortable. And obviously um, we know that that's probably not going to be the most effective thing. Like we're not doing a sleeper stretch on an athlete anymore. Um, But I think something like shoulder cars or swimmers, any kind of those FRC controlled rotational movements where we're forcing the athlete to actually control those movement patterns and the end ranges. One, I think from a resiliency standpoint, that's going to be good just to, you know, retain some robustness and some strength within that, those, those, those muscles that are actually being forced to decelerate so much. Um, but then on top of that, it's like, we just need to fill up the other buckets. Like those athletes are doing rotational movements all the time. We probably don't need to have them come in and do some, you know, chops. Like 
they already took a hundred swings that day. Like your split stance Kaiser chops aren't going to really have much of an effect where that bucket isn't being filled to something like anti-rotation, right? Like they're doing rotation, rotation, rotation. Let's, okay, if we want to do anything as far as core work, let's look at what they're getting and do the exact opposite. Anti-rotation, great. Um, and then, you know, it's like minimal doses, right? Like I, I think one other thing I've learned through my career is that athletes probably don't need as much as you think, or at least at the beginning of your career, you're like, I got this sick program. We're going five by five. <laughs> We're going to get these guys strong. And you learn that like, they don't need that, right? Like they already have so much going on, especially if they're a high level athlete, there's so much stress and stimulus already being put into the system. I think our jobs as coaches is evaluate, okay, what do they need? And just do that. And everything outside of that, anything that you think is fun or cool you want to do with your athlete, eh, leave it alone, right? Like really, really take and analyze the information you have about what that athlete is doing. Also, definitely ask them how they're feeling. Like that's every single time that athlete walks into the weight room or anytime you're interacting with them in season, make sure you know subjectively how they feel because that's super important and actually can give us some really great information. Um, but then on top of that, look at what they're already receiving from their skill work, only fill the buckets that they're not receiving and don't do anything else. Yeah, for sure. Um, you got all great information there. Do you mind just maybe going through kind of a summary, I guess, of the main points that you'd want people to take away athletes and coaches kind of from the performance and health aspect, and then we can kind of wrap up here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a good way to wrap up what we talked about with how you can positively affect the skill movement is that example of the trebuchet. So build a really strong, resilient base or a bracing mechanism, make sure that that athlete has a forceful relationship with the ground and create some decent general power so that we can have a heavier counterbalance weight and then make sure it has a resilient and efficiently coordinated trunk so that it can be um, transferred up the kinetic chain. Uh, on top of that, what else did we talk about? Um, we talked about at the end there, how you just want to give them kind of the minimal effective dose and make sure you're just filling the buckets that they don't get. Um, we talked about how the, Shoulder is extremely affected by the thoracic spine and its ability to coordinate with the scapula and how that should not be overlooked. Um, I think that, that pretty much wraps it up. I think I, <laughs> I probably missed something, but that was my best shot right there. Perfect. Well, yeah, thank you very much, Joseph, for being on. Um, if you just want to shout out where people can follow you, HyperThrive, get in touch um, if they have questions or if they um, want to sign up for anything, and then I'll put all those in the show notes. Appreciate it. Yeah, so... On Instagram, we are at HyperThrive Athletics. We're extremely, um, we're extremely on that, active on that. So any questions or anything, um, we will definitely respond through there. So feel free to give us a follow. We try to post, you know, pretty consistent content. Um, but if you guys have any questions or want to touch base about anything else, I'd be happy to talk. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to No Week Links. If you've enjoyed the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning and injury and rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on Facebook at Coach Patrick Wood, on Twitter at Coach Patty Wood, and on my website www.patrick-wood.com. All of this can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening.